Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of Flip Your Lid. I got a new best friend, everybody. Her name is Noelle Toscano, and she is from Wilmington, Delaware. You thought I was going to say North Carolina. Nope, folks, she's from Delaware. And she's director of a nonprofit organization called Ezra Rising, and she's a badass. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Yes, we cuss on this podcast. We do. It's real life, people. So, Noelle, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really good to have you here. I know you got so much going on. You're super busy and you're taking time out to hang out with us. So thank you for that. So we're going to get into what Ezra Rising is for those who don't know. And we're going to get to kind of check in about some things. But let's just start where we always start. The only prearranged, preset question, which is talk to us a little bit about what happened in your life that flipped your lid and what measures did you have to take to reconnect? To who God says you are. Well, I mean, I would, I would say there's been a few things that have flipped my lid in my lifetime. Uh, but I think the biggest thing probably happened about six years ago. I started to, or, well, I guess I can back up. I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh-huh. So my dad is a, was a Baptist pastor, mom, the pastor's wife, very dutiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in the eighties. And they, I mean, both of my parents were first-generation Christians, and so they had grown up in what they would call broken homes, and there was addiction, and they really felt like, you know, the, the answer to, you know, our future is, is faith, and mm-hmm. so they were very, very passionate about their faith, and they raised us kids, you know, there was four of us kids in this, this very, it was very, very intense, um, and a lot, I just remember as a child being very, like, afraid afraid of hell and afraid of demons Mm. and afraid of Satan. And, you know, just very, just, and and I looked around and I just felt like all these people are going to hell unless I tell them, you know, and as a, as a five or six or seven year old, it's a lot of pressure. I was witnessing to my little kindergarten friends. And uh, I went on to Bible college and graduated with a bachelor's degree in religious education in 2002. And I married a very devoted Christian Baptist man named Chad in 2002. Uh, And as I started to really kind of come into adulthood, because I was married when I was 22, um, I had a job working for a nonprofit, a pregnancy center. Hmm. And um, I started to kind of recognize that so much of my faith was dictated by the family that I grew up in, the college that was providing my education, the church family that I felt like was surrounding me, that loved me. And you know, it wasn't until, okay, so I started to really thrive in one particular Southern Baptist church. And I had had two of my kids and I started writing and I started, I wrote a book and I, the book ended up getting published, which was very surprising to me. I wrote it as a curriculum for middle school girls uh, um, on how to kind of walk through your Christian life Mm. with your parents, with dating, with, you know, your friends and just everything I probably would have needed as a 14, 15 year old Mm. girl. And I got to do a speaking tour and I thrived. I had no fear in front of people. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I was like, what do I do with this? You know, this, like, I didn't recognize that I had those gifts and those abilities because mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the faith system that I was grown, had grown up in really said that those were the kinds of things that men were supposed to be mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And so I was teaching uh, women's ministries at the church and I kept feeling like it's a part of my, my personality is an INFJ. And so I view people as far as like their potential is concerned. I think I see the good in everybody, the strength in everybody. I just want everybody to, you know, walk in that fullness and just go be the person that they're supposed to be and thrive. And I found that in teaching women's ministries, I was not able to be myself and do that because I was supposed to, under the umbrella mm-hmm. of that theological teaching, teach women to be submitters and to be women who elevated their husbands and responded to their husband's authority. And really they were not going to be the initiators. They were never going to be elders. They were never going to be pastors. They were never going to preach a sermon Mm -hmm. and they were really never going to minister to men that there wasn't ever going to be a place and space where men got to learn from women, the Mm -hmm. wisdom of women and what women were learning. And once I saw that, I was like, it was like the ball just rolled and rolled and rolled down the hill. And I, I realized at this church in this church setting, I'm never going to see those things. My children are never going to see those things. My husband's never going to experience those things. And then I started even digging more into like the theological basis for how this has really been a tool of suppression for women since the beginning. And that was when (laughs) the lid got flipped. (laughs) I was like, what am I supposed to do now? Like everything that I did in my life was built and founded on this. This was my identity in Christ was that I was supposed to be this woman, this quiet woman, this submissive Mm. woman, this Mm. dutiful Mm. woman, this servanty woman. And all of a sudden I'm like, but my voice says I'm supposed to lead and initiate and I've got the ideas and the Enneagram eight says I'm supposed to challenge, you know, challenge people. And I couldn't be who I was. Mm -hmm. And I lasted five more years at that church before my soul slowly started to die. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the, the friendships that I made, I wasn't able to tell them all. I mean, I tried to tell them all the things that I, I saw for them. It's sort of almost like, I know you know what I'm talking about, that prophetic ability when you see the, mm-hmm. the beauty and the potential in people, you want it, you want to push them towards it. I felt like I, I wasn't supposed to be doing that. So I felt like I was doing something that was going to disappoint the leaders and pastors that I wanted, yeah, that I respected and I wanted their respect. And I wanted, you know, also to all be in this body of believers together. And I recognized that it just wasn't for me anymore. Yeah. So I had to go, I had to leave. And I was in church since diapers. Right. And I was like, ah, you know, what am I supposed to do Mm. now? This was my identity. Yeah. And that was like during the time that like um, social media really started to become something where people were interacting with with each other more. It wasn't just like, blah, blah, blah. I really enjoy hot fudge Sundays. It was more just like, here's how I feel about this political issue or theological issue or environmental issue. Whatever it was, people were finding their people in groups. Mm. And that's how I found Aza Rising. So mm. they were brand new. They had just started. They were talking about all these women's stuff that I was interested in. And I started really like learning. I read every book I could get on both sides, complementarian and egalitarian sides mm-hmm. of it, and really started to become very, very convinced that there was a better way to do this, that you could still believe the Bible. You could still love God. And I think that you could be a more of a Christ follower if you were to 
prioritize equality within the genders and allow different people to just be who they are and to amplify that. So that, I mean, I started kind of commenting on a lot of their stuff before I knew it, the, uh, the director of it, Sierra White asked me to join the content creator team. So I started doing some of that. I was terrible at graphics, but I was pretty good with words. And then, um, like a few years later, she ended up uh, promoting me to co-director and then she moved on in her life. So now I've been the director of that for about two years. So we have nonprofit status about a year ago that was like officially official. So what we do is we bring in voices and we are a rotation. So Mm. there's always new voices rising up and we want to hear from everybody different races, different, you know, um, LGBTQ. We want, we want to hear from men, you know, mm-hmm. we want to hear, we want to hear about people. And, and the main issues that we talk about are equality, equity, and intersectionality. So mm-hmm. just trying to figure out, like our goal is always to figure out how do you reach out into the margins and bring people and go, this is, you know, people, there's so many people who have so much to say and they had 98 friends <laughs> and they like, they need to keep their circle small as yeah. for protective measures. Sure. We give them a platform of 15,000, you know, or more to be able to say, here's a support system. Here's some like-minded people. Wow. Here's some voices that are, you know, some people who are going to listen to your voice and appreciate mm-hmm. what you have to say. And then sometimes, you know, we are controversial. Um, we don't mind swearing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're a little bit edgy. But what, what's interesting about it is that if, if somebody on our, our staff ends up sort of discouraged because they wrote something that got a different kind of response or whatever, we come alongside them and we support mm-hmm. them and we encourage them. So it's this supportive mm-hmm. system, this networking of different you know, believers that have come together in order to try to amplify individual voices towards a common goal. Yeah. So I love what I get to do because yeah. I get to do the thing that was done for me beautifully by the previous mm-hmm. Asa Rising team. And now this sort of new generation is rising up and mm-hmm. and starting to talk about new things. And I feel a little like in their dust because they're so good. <laughs> so a big part of what I do is just to try to bring out the best in them. Well, I, I love that. And I, well, first, let's just talk about the fact that you're an Enneagram 8, which is the best <laughs> Enneagram number out there. I'm not biased at all uh but no really i can can feel your power and it's like a beautiful uh, aggression and i think it's important to call it aggression because we're told we're not allowed to be aggressive right or if we do something small assertive then that makes it aggressive but i'm saying like it's like it's like a christ-centered aggressiveness that you have Mm -hmm. and i can feel your passion when Mm -hmm. you're sharing about it and how many people that because of your fantastic organization are getting to have a voice it's so much a part of why i started icu talks because people weren't allowed to have a voice Right, and so you're all doing that. And I want to read a little bit of what Shell's mission statement. This is part of what is on Facebook, and, and it's all of it is so powerful. Like I really just want to even I even want to post it on my Facebook page just so people can <laughs> see, just like my my new church watershed, the things they have uh, as their mission statement, and and all this. Like it's it's words you don't get to see put together. It's people you don't get to see put together. Right, And so y'all have done a beautiful job. I just want to read one small portion. All of it's worthy. But we believe all people, regardless of gender or sexual identity, are capable of changing the world as co-heirs in Christ. Children of God partnering together to, to advance the kingdom. We believe all people are of equal importance, value, and position in the kingdom of God. Now, 
If that were a completely true statement for all of us, then it wouldn't excite me so much. Mm-hmm. And I know you are working so hard to make that true. Mm-hmm. So then people read that, that it, it's not fresh. This is fresh information. This is not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there's too many churches like what you shared about that you were in that tells you that you're allowed to come to this far mm-hmm. and outside of that you're going to disrupt a system that's very beneficial for certain people. Yep. And just really the internal fortitude it takes to walk away from a church where you know people look up to you mm-hmm. and um, see you mm-hmm. and you can stay right there and be regarded, but it's it's not enough because it, there was some message in there telling you that you weren't enough. You weren't good enough for a higher plane, for a higher stage, correct? Yeah, I think that that was a, a big piece of it. I started to find that... Uh, you know, there was different things that I wanted to see happen at that church, different, you know, different types mm-hmm. of ministries I wanted to be a part of or spearhead. And I was really, the door just kept getting kind of slammed in my face. And I, yeah. I saw the men around me be able to kind of start things and they got all this backing and all this support. Mm-hmm. And I was really told by the pastor, you really kind of need to find something that's already been established and roll with that. That's kind of your your, you know, that's your role in all this. And it was just very like dismissive, I guess. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there was other things too. Like, I, I don't know. I just, I I started to really believe that women can be pastors and that women are Mm -hmm. called to pastoral roles. And I started to look at the way that the church structure has been, you know, kind of created and established and fortified Mm -hmm. and recognize that it's not the church of Acts at all. And I'm not saying we have to be the church of acts. I just think we need to stop lying to ourselves and saying that the Bible talks to us about what church is supposed to look like and be like based on example. It's not true. And like you had said, when we were talking, I think before, you know, recording, we're always changing and always evolving and always Mm -hmm. growing. And we should always be doing that. And I think the church of God is exactly the same. We have to look at what's going on and saying, you know, this whole system that was built in a way that valued hierarchy and said that this hierarchy, those at the top are responsible. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they're not capable of not abusing their power because they're humans. Mm -hmm. Um, There's always some kind of abuse that happens, be financial or a spiritual abuse or whatever that's it's founded in our own sin and selfishness. You have to have different people on equal playing field and with a system of checks and balances so that that doesn't happen. Because there was a time in my life I thought, maybe I'll be a pastor. And I started going to seminary and I'm like, I can, I can see it. And then I was like, I can't see it because I don't know what that person looks like. I know what my Mm -hmm. dad looked like as a pastor. Right. I know that what that was like, I know the different kinds of pastors that I've respected and been under. And the truth is, is that none of them are like me. And the truth is that I don't want to be like them. Right. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you go, you ask the question, God, what are you doing right now? Because everything is upside down. Everything is upside down. Yep. Yeah. And COVID did that too. COVID Mm -hmm. put us all in our, our, you know, made it okay for people to not go. And then, you know, kind of, and then everybody went, wait a minute, maybe I don't need that in order to grow. Maybe that was my, that was my safety net that made me feel like I had a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And maybe I need to 
you know, break that down, that dependence that I have on feeling like all the boxes are checked because I showed up and I paid my tithe and I served and I read my Bible and I did my little prayer in the morning and I went about my day patting myself on the back for being a good Christian. Mm. When in reality, I think that God, that divine has been put out there and we get our lifetime to go searching for it. Right. And the only way that we search for it is by just recognizing everything we don't know <laughs> and saying, I got, I got to stand on grace right now and just say, I did everything that I could today mm-hmm. to find something that was real mm-hmm. versus something that was man-made or trying to find somebody to follow so I could read what they wrote or, you know, take somebody else's advice. Like, no, you know, they're faking it too. (laughs) Everybody, you know, there's this whole, like this whole, when it comes to my faith, I'm just, I'm, I had explained this to you a little bit beforehand, but I'm just very, like, I don't have a church right now. And that's very strange for me. And I'm forcing myself to sit in that space Mm -hmm. because I know it would be very easy for me to go back. I I know how to play the role. Mm -hmm. I know how to be accepted. Mm -hmm. I know how to let people get excited about me showing up because they know I could do things. I know how to be liked. I know how that can fan my own self-worth. And I know that it has nothing to do with God. Yeah, that's so good. And I'm looking for God. Yeah. So you had asked the question, the second part of flipping the lid. I don't know. (laughs) I'm working on it. (laughs) Yeah, but the beauty of all that, because it's that sense of reconnecting yourself and you still can be of service to Mm -hmm. the people through your authentic vulnerability that you're sharing with us. And that just to think like two years ago, if you said you were in a church, like people start slowly backing away. Like there's like it's contagious. Something's going to happen in COVID. For some people, allowed people to have family time, read different books, still pursue, but also like it's an we're starting to get an understanding of the system. So how would you explain like how did we get here? Where overall the the pastor becomes an idol. Things mm-hmm. like people. I think people go into church, especially those with a, an abused background the church becoming a second parenting. They were still looking for approval. We're still looking. And so the they're being talked down to and some some because some things are very shaming and demeaning and, and preachy and it causes emotional aggression. It puts people in a position that they're already new first in life and allows people to think works is going to get them. It's an earning mentality. Yeah. It's going to get them to a place of love. Mm-hmm. And so we're breaking free from that. Can you talk a little bit about how we got to where we are and what do you think's next for your mission statement to be even more true than you're already making it? Okay. I think, I think that, uh, you know, when I look, I love history. I love looking at the past and go, why did, why did that happen? You know, why did that happen the way that it happened? Because I think the more we learn why it happened that way, the more we can prevent, you know, we can break mm-hmm. those cycles. So when I think about what I had explained, you know, where I came from being, you know, this evangelical Christian in a Southern Baptist background in my childhood, it was very fear-based. It was developing from childhood people who were terrified, mm-hmm. very, very dependent on the leaders to guide them. Yeah. And that leadership gave those people this sense of control and self that probably started out in a very good place where they were just mm-hmm. like, we got the Bible, we got, we're going to put them all in a bubble, everybody's going to be protected. Because if you think about it, in the 80s, 
like my, my parents' generation, they lived through, uh, they saw, you know, their parents saw presidential assassination. Their mm-hmm. parents saw the Vietnam War. Their parents saw, you know, civil rights movement. Their parents were traumatized what was happening on TV every day. The generation before that didn't have all that access. So now they're, they're looking at it going, our world's gone crazy. What are we going to do? Yeah. You know, and in their own fear, they said, I just have to trust God. And I think that that, mm. that, that started out such a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think that it morphed into this. If we don't make sure that we're all like scared to death on the edge of our streets, making sure that we're doing all the right stuff, then we're all going to go to hell. We're going to send our children to hell. And what ended up happening, what was born out of that was just an entire theological movement that was based on fear tactics mm-hmm. and it made us hate ourselves. Yeah. It made us feel like I'm the object of God's wrath. Thank you for Jesus, which is nice to tack on at the end. But I think when you tack it on the end, you know, what ends up happening is it doesn't necessarily sink in. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to go, I'm a lost sheep. It's another thing to say, I'm a despised sheep. Right. And so I think that that message got morphed in there and it was sort yeah. of only by the grace of God, are we worthy of any of it? And all your works are like dirty period pads, which was yeah. told to me when I was a kid, all the good really? stuff you do is as good as a period, dirty period pad. And I'm like, geez, that's pretty gross. <laughs> like you're yeah. trying to like get this shock out of right. me. That mm-hmm. if I do good things, but I don't necessarily attribute it to, to God, every little thing in that moment that there is shame. So mm-hmm. it's good, then shame, good, then shame, good, yeah. then shame. There yeah. was no place of, I am a child of God. Mm-hmm. I am God's beloved child. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I started having kids of my own and I looked at them and I was like, oh, no, no, no. I, I would never, never, ever, ever try to make you feel that way. I would Mm -hmm. never think that that was a a good thing that you would view me as this teacher who hurts you so that Mm -hmm. you can learn, you know, I I would never want you to feel like you're responsible for my anger when you're just a kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's so good. And everything you said just gave me that visual of something that, you know, I didn't grow up in the church, but I remember early on as an adult in the church hearing about like, you know, I love, you know, um, I think it's Luke fourteen fifteen where, they're, you know, you leave the 99 to go for the one mm-hmm. that walks away. And that back in the day, the shepherd would, would get the one sheep and break its leg so it wouldn't ever run away again. Mm-hmm. Well, that made sense to me because I was abused. Mm-hmm. Right? And so once I did a lot more trauma work, that doesn't make sense to me anymore why a shepherd would say, so that you'll stay close to me, I'll, I'll hurt you. Right. But so many of us are hurt. We don't question that. Mm-hmm. We don't ask anything. And so this idea that God is a punishing God and the only way to stay in his favor is to do certain things. If you have certain thoughts or certain actions, then, then you just cause something else bad to happen in your life. Right. That, that is what's been laid in front of us, especially people who have been abused or they've heard it all their lives. We don't ask the right questions. We don't ask any questions. Right. That's the, that's a major thing is, is being so afraid that if you ask questions, it'll be viewed as a lack of faith. Yes. That is sin. Yes. And so you just buy what they say, Mm. hook, line and sinker, but without Mm -hmm. realizing that you're putting your faith in in them Mm. and not in God. Right. And I, you know, I just think that 
if God is who God says God is, yes. then it's going to look different than that, yeah. that we yeah. get our life to pursue what is real, a, a real actual relationship with the God who made us and guides and directs our path. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we get to, we should ask those hard questions, right. which is, you know, why do the bad things happen? And mm-hmm. you know what, and how, how should I feel about this? Mm-hmm. You know, because I think the answer for me, it, out of all this, you had asked the question, where do we go from here? I just think, I always think the answer is more love, like just yeah. more love for people, yeah. more love for me. It'll come together. Mm-hmm. It'll come together. The, the, the rotten fruit of theology that has put its, its entire structure within a hierarchy that says certain people are more supposed to be in charge because God ordained that has resulted in so much abusive behavior Mm -hmm. that that way has resulted in a total lack of love. You can see it. There's a lack of love for immigrants, a lack of love for, you know, people of different races, Mm -hmm. a lack of love for the black community, a Mm -hmm. lack of love for LGBTQ. It's just Mm -hmm. love, love, love. It's all stripped away. And they feel like they have this responsibility for people to fall in line. And when you fall in line, it's always conveniently under them. Yes. And what they think you should do and their authority. And they Mm -hmm. embrace those who look, talk and walk exactly like them. Mm -hmm. And you're in the club Mm -hmm. and we have to set all these other people in line. Yeah. And it's just, once you sort of look back and see Mm -hmm. how, I mean, it's actually really embarrassing. I think for the evangelical church today right now, because so many Mm -hmm. people are walking away. Mm-hmm. They're just like, I want no part of this hypocrisy. And so one of our taglines for A's are rising is rebuilding the church through the lens of women. Yeah. And the idea and the concept there is not edging men out. It's what it's saying is it's been built through the lens of men. And this is what we have been left with. Yes. And it's time for the other voice to come in mm-hmm. and unify, mm-hmm. not take over. Mm-hmm. unify and right. work together and right. say women have had a lot to offer and they haven't been able to. And yeah. that has resulted in a lot of the things that we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, particularly for the Southern Baptists, those pastors had no idea what to do in situations of domestic violence and abuse and sexual abuse in marriages. And they went ahead and told wives to stay with their husbands because mm-hmm. God hates divorce. That's right. And a lot of those wives ended up murdered. You know, yeah. it was like, mm-hmm. Just to mm-hmm. look back and go, these pastors aren't trained in such a way to handle these situations. Well, why aren't they? Because they're coming from a standpoint where women are supposed to be playing a role in marriages and that role is to be under him. Right. And that did took away her voice. And, mm-hmm. and not only does it take away a woman's voice and opportunity to actively participate in a way that makes her thrive, it elevates many, many, many men's egos. Mm -hmm. And they think that it's their job and their role to be the decision maker, the initiator. They get to say who's doing what. They call themselves a spiritual head. They they say crazy things like they're responsible before God for the state of their family. And I'm like, show me the verse. (laughs) It doesn't exist. (laughs) Like, you know, but that's a great way for you to go ahead and put a crown on your head and mm-hmm. act as though you're some kind of prince and she was made for your glory. Right. And like right. that does not the result of it. Once I really, really took a step back and looked at it, I went, you know what? We're we're all supposed to be participating in this. Yeah. Yeah. We're all supposed to spend our lives figuring out what who is God in me? Mm-hmm. What am I here to do? Mm-hmm. I want to help you. 
Mm-hmm. Do you want to help me? Yeah. Because that's so, when it works. Yeah, that's right. So there's there's two paths to go on that. And I want to go on both. Mm-hmm. Well, there actually there's a thousand. Let, I'm just gonna I'm gonna call it two because it's all so good and I appreciate what you're sharing. One is I truly believe some of the scripture that has been misused, misinterpreted, and everything's just an interpretation, right? It's just an interpretation. So mm-hmm. it's so someone having a different interpretation does not make them less godly or more godly. Just say that. This idea that I must die to self in order to to be loved, right? In one of my favorite scriptures, John 3.30, that I must decrease so that he can increase. So part of why I love that, but my understanding of that is I have to decrease every lie that tells me I'm not worthy of God's love. And so mm-hmm. his love and grace and mercy mm-hmm. becomes bigger in me. My essence becomes bigger, who he sent his son for, who God sent his son for, died for, be resurrected, if you want to look at it that way, that those parts of me are to be resurrected in that is the death and the the new life. Mm-hmm. Not the idea that I should have less needs, mm-hmm. less of a voice, and less choice, because that is a definition of trauma. Mm-hmm. So you put someone in a traumatized state so that the other people are allowed to take up more space. So you got somebody very small, the women, mm-hmm. right? Because I've, I've, I've had a handful of men in 20 years of me being a psychotherapist tell me that they worry that they are selfish. I've had... 95% of women I've worked with tell me that they think they're selfish because they're even in therapy or they think about themselves for a moment or they're tired of being a mom or they don't want to cook that night or they want to be on the stage and, and preach, but that they think it's all selfish. So we know there is a system, not just in the church, but in so many other ways, there's teaching us that men don't hear this story over and over again, that they, they aren't told to play small, but mm-hmm. we are. Right. So for women, for men, for, for women, it's selfish, mm-hmm. but for men, it's admirable. That's it's right. taking initiative. It's leadership. So right. that double standard goes, how is it in men, this more godly, admirable characteristic, but for women, it's a sinful, right? you know, and it's the idea it, it's, it's been used as a tactic against women since the beginning, because women don't want to be perceived that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being a kid and I just remember like my dad, he would call women who were protesting feminazis and wow. he'd get that furrow in his brown. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, in my mind, I'm looking at their signs and it's like, oh, they want equal pay. Mm. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I don't know why that, what that has to do with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, yeah. but you know, right. like, you know, as, as a kid, that yeah. was, that was very much so it was stigmatized feminism mm-hmm. was. And mm-hmm. it's such a shame because I get that there's women out there who are, they're bullies, you know, and they're just kind of like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to, you know, and everybody needs to bow to me because I'm the queen. I'm not into that. You know, I think that, like you said, like, like we all need to analyze what it means to die to self. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that we die to you know, like, like you said, like the lies that are coming in at us all the time, we have to that kill those things, you know, those mm-hmm. things that are going to try to make us shrink. Mm-hmm. We don't need to take up all the oxygen in the room. Right. You know, that's like a big thing. I've been in that room where somebody else just totally takes it over. Sometimes it's a welcome thing if you, ice needs to be broken. And, but sometimes it's like, wait a minute, at the end of the day, was everybody heard? And I think right. that that's important. That's not happening in church right. settings. Right. And I think that a lot of women are conditioned to feel as though 
Nobody wants to hear what they say and what they have mm-hmm. to say is not of value. Right. So what happens to them? Yeah. You know, I always imagine like they're just, they become a shell, mm-hmm. you know, they just become mm-hmm. this service. I serve my children. I serve their school. I serve the church in the nursery. I serve my husband, you know, and then their whole heart isn't in it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they might feel like, okay, I mean, I'm just going to say this because I did, I watched another one of your things. So I think I can, how, how many husbands out there want to have obligation sex with their wives? Probably not. Yeah. They'd really prefer if their wives wanted to connect with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to know how to connect with your wife? Listen to her, yeah. you know, value yeah. what she has to say, show her that you care about her you connect with her on that level, Mm -hmm. she will want to connect with you Mm -hmm. on a level, you know, that is very mutual and meets both of your needs. That's very vulnerable. So coming together in those ways, that emotional bond that Mm -hmm. is, you know, that, um, you know, it it translates into the physical. And and what about the moms who try so hard to be a good, loving parent, but there's no authenticity in it. When that kid, my kid, my my son, my six-year-old said to my husband, daddy um do people go to hell <laughs> like my husband like pulled up a chair and he was like all right let's talk about this and he starts to sort of give him the gospel but in my mind i'm going he's six you know yeah. he's in kindergarten yeah and i think that i'm like in my mind i'm like i'll fix it i'll fix it later <laughs> but but uh my husband gives him the six-year-old like it's probably more appropriate for like a 10 11 or 12 year old version and at the end of it my six-year-old just went Daddy, that sounds really fake, wow. you know, which was wow. hilarious you know what I think I think as a parent, we give our kids the pat answers, and mm-hmm. they don't see a genuine vulnerability within their parents, so why would they ever open up to parents who don't open up to them? Why would they ever feel safe to parents? Mm-hmm who are guarded and a shell of a person and always giving this Christianese spiritual answer mm-hmm. that they're supposed to give. I think it's got to be okay to say, I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. Or this was yeah. my personal experience with it. And I, I kind of hold on to this idea because I like it, but you've got to make your own decisions. Yeah. Well, and part of what you're saying that's so profound is, is about secure attachment. Mm-hmm. So if we have secure attachment to, to, to ourselves, to God within, to spouse, Secure attachment means that you know you can take risks. It means that it's okay to mess up because you'll say you're sorry, that you'll regulate experiences with each other. Right. And so when you have that and and someone says, hey, I think I want to study Buddhism, you go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me know what you learn. <laughs> right? Like it's because it's, my window of talent for religion is very large because I know what I believe and I know there's room for me to listen to other people and I can... I will only shift if I decide to shift. Like, you're not going to force me, right? Like, if you say, I used to be taught, like, if someone said Reiki in front of me, I should start praying immediately for that spirit entered me, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's, again, if we're, we're so faith-based and God is so big, we have so much fear, right? And so, yeah. but I think part of it, too, is that most women are raised of a preoccupied attachment, which means we are to be preoccupied with what someone else is experiencing, thinking, and seeing, Mm-hmm. And their effort goes into them not feeling rejected, hoping we won't be rejected, even though we reject ourselves constantly in that. Most men, passed down generationally, are raised avoided attachment, which means they don't show up emotionally. They're task-driven. And so they will sell in a church. They will sell in a corporation. 
they won't really be present for you as a husband or father because no one's, because again, it's generational. People do yeah. what's passed down, right, most of the time. That keeps the the dynamics in the church exactly where they are. Yeah. 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 And so I think, I think that, um, to be honest, I think that our generation has figured out some pretty profound things that we're teaching the younger generation. Yeah. And they're going to be even better than us. Yeah. You know, and I think that I have a lot of hope because I'm raising four little feminists who view themselves as LGBTQ allies Mm -hmm. and their beloved grandma who lives next door is gay and they love her and, you know, they don't think anything of it. And that is so different from what I grew up with, you know? And so there's this part of me and piece of me that's like, I'm sure they're going to have a whole other slew of reasons they need therapy in adulthood, but it's not going to be that, you know, yeah. so, yeah. I, and, and I think that, you know, that what you're sort of talking about, the differences between in culture, the way that, you know, the men were raised, that's mm-hmm. shifting so quickly. I'm so thankful for the mm-hmm. millennial generation, because I just think they're just so kind, you know, to each other. And they, they sort of are, they're, they're hungry for the information they want to, I didn't know anything about the rest of the world. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I was very much so in my tiny little bubble and I was very happy to go to Africa and tell them all how to go to heaven, you know, and in and I realizing that, like, they probably had a deeper, richer relationship with God than I ever could. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that by honoring different cultures and honoring different, you know, different people that are different than us, Mm -hmm. we come together. And I think that you know, us being able to really see, and and this is so hard right now because I was taught as a child that your emotions will lie to you. Don't trust them. That's, Mm. you're definitely on your way to Satan. If you start to have a feeling, you should never say I feel Mm. in a sentence. I I know you know what I'm talking about. Your feelings will deceive you and they're from your father, the the liar of hell, Satan. And just to be able to go ahead and be like, you know what? My feelings keep me on track. Mm -hmm. My feelings are based on my thoughts. My thoughts are based on the experiences that I've had and the the information that I'm taking around me. It's based on how I've embraced other people and their situation in their lives. And the more I see other people, the more I see God, God's image in them, even, and them being so different than me, I can appreciate and honor them through that. And then I could go looking for God in me. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I was always taught that if you do that, you're like going to become prideful. And the truth is that until we have self-love, we can't actually love God. You know, mm-hmm. there's we're made in God's image and likeness. Mm-hmm. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are beloved. We are gifted. I am an identical twin, but there's nobody else in the world like me. Right. You know, that's there's right. nobody else in the world like you. And somehow you and mm-hmm. I end up on different parts of the country, talking mm-hmm. on a screen together, having yeah. this amazing connection yeah. because that's God in us allowing us mm-hmm. to do that. That's the unseen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what says, do I believe in God or not? Yes, I do because yeah. I, because of that. Yeah. And then how do I take that and then share it? Mm-hmm. You know, how does the next generation that's coming up take a structure that has been built like Babel to the mm-hmm. sky to, so that we can look good? Mm-hmm. And say, you know what? We have to change our language and we have to look at it and go, I care about you over here. 
I'm going to do everything I can to connect with you because I see God in you. Do you see God in me? Right. Because if you see God in me, you will see that I love you mm-hmm. and God loves you. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm here, you're not alone. Right. And as long as you're here, I know that I'm not alone. Yeah. And that's our role. Yeah. That's that's as far as I can extend it right now because, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the future looks like. If I was in a gathering of people that started to, you know, somebody grabbed the guitar and started singing a song, I would sing my heart out. You know, I would want to worship God in that setting, but I don't want to walk in a building with a steeple and everybody is dressed up and a pastor gets up and is buttoned down and starts telling the people everything that they want to hear. Mm. You know, to me, I'm like, give me something real. I need something real. Mm -hmm. And not to say that that's not real, but it's not real to me right now. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. for something else. Yeah. So I haven't found it yet. <laughs> yeah. But. And, you know, you know, it's so important. You know, our brains are, God made our brains to look for safety. Mm-hmm. And part of safety is finding a place where you can regulate your experiences, your past mm-hmm. experiences, your current experiences. And so what takes us out of that is a threat. And a threat of judgment, a threat of rejection is huge wherever you go. We, we're, it's called neuroception. We're always looking for cues for safety, threat, and danger. Right, it's part of our you, our connection. Like we just we were able just to know we're a match, right? We can we're we're picking up, we're safe with each other. I have permission to be myself. I don't have to hide any part of my life. And so people are walking into a church, and you and I both can understand why they are believing what they're believing. Mm-hmm. Can very much understand that. But if that's the level of safety, and that safety means if you're not in this bubble, then you're not a you're not allowed to be part of, you're not worthy of, of experiencing God, mm-hmm. then you get a whole lot of people who will never find what all of us are, are saying that we have that we want to offer. Right. Right. Yeah. And, the, and it's not, we're saying it's free, and it's, we're giving it a very high price to tell somebody they have to look and act a certain way or they're not allowed to be in the club. And that's what's been lost, and that's what needs to change. Mm-hmm. And I think as individuals, we'll try to figure that out, you know, along yeah. the way. Um, I, I'm so, I feel so good about feeling like a part of that conversation and getting mm-hmm. to be, you know, a voice that tries to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one more thing I had wanted to talk to you about that I didn't, I didn't warn you that I yeah, wanted to talk me. about, but I think it'll be right up your alley if that's okay. Please, I, did, I did read your book, but I want to talk about alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> because you're—I don't know if you've ever talked much about it on your podcast, have you? I talk all over, speak all over about my alcoholism. So um, I have no idea when and where I've talked about it because I talk about it so much. So I'm mm-hmm. not really sure. But I'm, okay. I, it's, it's, I'm very open about. I've been sober for 26 years. I'm very open. Okay. About it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about it too, because so, so recently in my life, I decided I didn't want alcohol to be a part of my life anymore. And it wasn't anything I ever grew grew up with. It was very stigmatized. Like in my life, my parents really looked down on anybody who even would have a beer at a barbecue. And they would say, that's a stumbling block for alcoholics or whatever, but they both had alcoholic parents. So I understand Mm. they grew up, Mm. you know, my dad used to say that he, he would listen to his dad walk up the stairs. And if he was stumbling up the stairs, he knew it was going to be a horrible night and he would go yeah. hide in his room. Yeah. So I never, I never, you know, touched it. And I always thought it was just the gateway to bad things. Um, 
but it wasn't until I started to really kind of feel like in adulthood, like I'm an adult, I can do what I want, you know, and I would uh, drink wine with friends and get that little fuzzy, happy go lucky feeling. And then it really, what happened to me was, and I, I, I'm telling you this because I think there might be somebody out there. I have not talked about it to anybody mm. um, other than my therapist. <laughs> um, that I started to become emotionally dependent on alcohol during the evening hours. Mm-hmm. My kids were in bed. My husband was winding down for the night. And my whole brain would swim with anxiety and fear. Are we all going to die of COVID? Or, you know, what am I going to mm-hmm. do because I lost my job because of COVID? And, you know, what, like all the, the things. And they're not irrational fears. They were very rational fears. Yeah. I could not cope with. Mm -hmm. And I started to notice this pattern in my life where I would wake up feeling sick because I drank too much the night before Mm -hmm. and uh, my, my heart would race and I would have a level and, you know, my anxiety would go up and I would start to just feel, you know, the, the, the hangover feelings and it would just make me really, really grumpy. And it would kind of amplify those negative feelings and it's, it started real small, you know, yeah. it was like, not like, I don't think that I have, I probably have, we all have things that we're addicted to, but I would be, if I felt crappy, I would be like, eh, what's, what do I want on Amazon? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Or I just yeah. really want to eat something, you know, but it was never like, I am so getting so depressed that I need to black out. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I hid from hmm. everybody. Yeah. Nobody yeah. knew. And I, I knew how to hide, the, you know, the mm-hmm. alcohol like around so people, my husband wouldn't know how much I drank and like, hmm. just, this is me, yeah. you know, like, I yeah. was like, what is this? And I just, I know that there's more people out there that are like me, mm-hmm. you know, I'd wake up with this feeling of existential dread. What did I say? Who did I text? What did I post? You know, like, like this feeling, cause, cause what would happen to me is I would drink one drink and I'd start to feel a little bit better. And then I would drink the second drink and I would get the dopamine hit and I would mm-hmm. be like, ah, like, I finally feel good for the first time in 24 hours. I mm-hmm. feel good. Mm-hmm. And it would last about 45 minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it would tank. The dopamine would tank yeah. and I would start to feel belligerent or sad. Mm-hmm. And I would just feel like I needed to say something mean, or I would just cry. And it was the same thing. And I, and the automatic thought, the addiction in it is if you drink more, it'll make the anger go away or the sadness go away, but it never does. It just right. makes it worse. Yeah. So I, I just, I fell into that. I mean, and I probably, mm-hmm. I really struggled with it very silently for almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I read, um, I read This Naked Mind, <laughs> which is by um, Annie Green. And she talks about, you know, she she had a very, very similar path where, and she talks a lot about just how like, it was like poison for her. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was this thing that would, she would, she would always drink two bottles of wine every night. And she thought it's red wine. It's fancy, you know, which is expensive, first of all, but she, she lost her personality. She lost mm-hmm. her light. You know, she, her friends the next day would be like, where are you? You know? And yeah. she just, and she, she challenged people to look at things like the commercials on TV, 
Mm-hmm. They tell you, you need alcohol to have fun. You need yeah. it to be this lighter version of yourself. You need alcohol to be able to have sex and be romantic. And you mm-hmm. need to, you know, you need, need, need. It's trying to make you feel deficient. And yeah. then, you know, and I just started to look at all those things. And she really challenges you in the book. She said, go ahead, have a drink, go do mm-hmm. it, you know, mm-hmm. and then tell me how you feel tomorrow. <laughs> Chapter yeah. four, how do you feel? Right. Today? You know, what right. dumb thing did you do? What did you say? You know, how do you feel about that? Wouldn't you really rather wake up every morning with hope? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you really love to imagine the potential of this day? Yeah. Go to bed early. Yeah. You know, take a melatonin, get a little exercise, go for a walk. Your life is so much better without this. And I just have to say it is like it is. So I don't, I just like, I read your book. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what I was name of my book. What was the name of my book? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But your mother loves you. But your mother loves you on Amazon. That book. Yes. Go get it, everybody. Go right now. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. There's, let's slowly unpack some of that because there's so many nuggets in what you just said. So I just kind of want to piggyback on that. And, and part of that is all of us understanding that. So when I got sober, first of all, they had to convince me that American Medical Association declared a disease in the 1950s based on certain criteria. My biggest fear, and so is Noel's, is being weak. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're Enneagram 8, that's our biggest thing we fight against is I don't want anybody to think I'm weak. And so to me, having a disease that built a handle alcohol, I couldn't take that on. It took me a long time to understand scientifically what it was. And then to mm-hmm. study neuroscience, because I'm a neuro nerd, understand what was happening with my brain. And I say this on purpose for two things. One, to know that when people generally are in community and truly connected and safe in community, the likelihood of alcohol becoming more important or dependence or some type of drug becoming more of a dependence decreases drastically. Mm-hmm. So when COVID happened, that was a threat for a lot of people. One, because of domestic violence, intimacy, personal yeah. um, violence that happens within a home. The concern automatically for me was like, how do people get to meetings? And doing mm-hmm. a Zoom meeting, when you're, especially when you're first sober, is not the same. It is a threat mm-hmm. to your sobriety because it is about the we of the program and community. So what you're being vulnerable about and saying is so true. People who all of a sudden had community, had a place to go for a job, and were more than just people that were half their size, their children, mm-hmm. were allowed to have internal intimacy and interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And that is why, for so many people, alcohol or forms of eating disorders or other things became more prevalent for people mm-hmm. is because community was not there, which means there's no connection. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing you said that I even thought about earlier you were saying, so I love that you said that was... You know, that commercials are set up, marketing set up is for you to be deficient. And so if you have, and a lot of that goes into what we talked about earlier about your attachment style. If you have this idea that you are defective in some way and you have a strong critical voice inside coming against you, it will tag in, that commercial tags into that critical voice and you think, oh, so your hope becomes in the next degree, the next book, the next diet, whatever it is, mm-hmm. instead of the hope being in getting closer to who you actually are. Right. And it sounds like you've really done the work to figure out who you are. You don't have to have it completely today, but it's about you saying, this is who I am today. It's in changing the internal script. Who I am today is enough. What I did today is enough. That's the main thing is to go, okay, 
I haven't arrived and I don't know if I ever will feel like that I have, and maybe I'm not supposed to, but I'm choosing a different way to do this. Mm -hmm. And that is bringing me a lot of truth and a lot of just authentic living. I am no longer trying to be the person that I think everybody else wants me to be. And I'm learning that when I'm the person that I am, I am more loved and more yeah. appreciated and yeah. I have more fun and I have better conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, because what that does is it frees other people to be their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we spend our lives trying to figure out, you know, what makes us feel good. Oh, it makes, it makes you feel good when somebody says, Oh my gosh, you're so skinny, you know? Yeah. And you're like, yeah. like yeah. you're 12 or 13 years old. And you're like, why does that make me feel so good yeah. about myself that I'm in like mm-hmm. a, like a single digit number pants or whatever. Right. And then the day comes when you're in a double digit number pants and you look fine and everybody in your life loves you and nobody cares, but it's this, you become, you became this number, that number that Mm -hmm. validated you when you were 12 Mm -hmm. or 13 or 14 has now invalidated you, you know, when you're 25, 26, 27 and how to let go of those, you know, those things. And to say, you know, I'm just living. I'm just living, I'm living my life. And I look around and I go, I've got this house and I've got these kids and these people, and these are my friends. Mm -hmm. And what is the instinct to grasp for more? Yeah. What is that? Because that needs to be shut down. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because the grasping for more is different than growing. Yeah, that's a great distinction, grasping for more versus growing. Because really what's missing, everybody, is self. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why as a rising and so much uh, of what Noelle's doing and Megan's doing and other people with within Ezra Riser, I know you're working so hard to do, is because without a sense of self, mm-hmm. we always look for something externally to fix the inside. Right. And so so that's why, you know, at the age of five, this is the only smart thing I've ever said, Noelle, but at the age of five, I asked my mom what I had to do to be equal to my dad and brother. I saw the differences when we were in public of how they got received compared to how I was talked to and how I got received. And so I became very aware of language. I'm just telling you all, mankind, policemen, firemen, when you think doctor to this day, you still instantly think male. You hear pilot, you think male. All of those things are exclusive until women that we're not allowed to take up a whole lot of space. Mm-hmm. And so when we do it too, just remember when, when you're saying like, hey guys, you're actually only talking to men. And you're saying it to women, so y'all <laughs> please be aware of that. I'm going to tell you to stop, but occupational segregation is alive. Mm-hmm. Walk into a church, and you already, already have an idea. There's only so far you can go in something. And that, for me, is not God's Word. Mm-hmm. That is not the complete purpose, the complete thing that's happening. And so even, Noel, what you're saying is like, hey, we're not trying to take over men. Well, I think part of the reason we have to say that is because it's a threat to them to think that we're trying to do anything. Right. Because they took over. Right. Right. And we're not trying to model ourselves after them, but it is an idea of, like, when, even people I know who work so hard talking about race, because think about it, until certain years, probably 1970s, when people started actually seeing black people on screen mm-hmm. in a leading role, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, people grow up not seeing themselves on TV. People grow up not seeing themselves in magazines. All these things, that is part of the exclusion yeah. That causes us to play small, and not, and that affects our mental health more than most of us will ever realize. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's a big part of what we want to do with Azer Rising is to, you know, dispel a lot of those things, um, not only to amplify new voices that are kind of coming through, um, but to expose other people to those, you know, those ideas and those thoughts and things that will mm -hmm. empower them and enrich their lives and help them to feel more confident, you know, to be able to go out into the world, to be who they are. You've got something amazing to offer. And there's going to be all these things telling you that you're not worthy of it or make you feel mm -hmm. afraid and learning how to let go of those things. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that I, I always like think of life as a road, you know, mm -hmm. there's this road that we're all on. Everybody's got a different one. Yeah. And we intersect and walk, you know, on each yeah. other's paths for a minute. We get to accompany each other. But ultimately, every, all of us has has to take our steps. Mm -hmm. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know about you. When I go for a walk by myself, about 30 seconds into the walk, I'm like, am I home yet? <laughs> I don't like this. But when I walk with somebody else, I'm like, oh, are we into three miles. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. And so that is the joy of of just being with other people. Yeah. So, and my personality is introverted, but at the same time, I'm extremely talkative, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, Oh, I got so much to say because I did so much mm -hmm. thinking about that. So to have an opportunity to be able to go ahead and put it out there for somebody who actually cares is so mm -hmm. meaningful. And I think that there's so many people walking through life thinking that nobody cares what they have to say. Yeah. And I just can't even imagine the sadness and the depression mm -hmm. of just sort of floating through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I, I hope my hope and my prayer for anybody listening to this is that you would know mm -hmm. that, you, you know, the world needs you and the world mm -hmm. needs your voice and mm -hmm. everything that you've gone through it does have meaning and it has contributed to who you are. Um, and I think that, you know, us identifying everything that we've learned and then going out there and using it to try to help other people, mm -hmm. that's really what it's all about. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, of squelching of that voices within ourselves. Other people will do it to us. I don't know about you, but like, I don't know if your mom's, I can almost hear your mom's voice a little bit in your book. I don't have a Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. I have a Richie, Richie, Richie. Ah, I see. I see. That's great. <laughs> it's my That's brother great. that yeah. my mom just completely and totally gave yeah. every bit of affection and yeah. warmth and love to him. And there was a lot of responsibilities heaped on me. Like, you know, Nicole and I were older, so it was like, this you're supposed to do the chores and take care right. of things and be, you know, this is who you're mm. supposed to be. And we all just kind of are supposed to dote on Richie, Richie, Richie. Um, but I'll hear her voice sometimes in my head. It's not her voice anymore. She's not saying it, but somebody is, and it sounds like her voice mm -hmm. and it's saying, shut up. Nobody wants to hear you. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, or yeah. they're going to think you're crazy. Yeah. They're going to think you're annoying. You know, and it's not her. And I'll tell you what, she never actually said those things. Mm -hmm. But that's the authority figure in my life that I felt closest to finding a way to try to keep me quiet. Yeah. And I have to stop that and recognize it really isn't her. It's just mm -hmm. how I felt as a child and my inner child. I need to be the mother to her that mm -hmm. she didn't have, you know, yeah. and just to go, I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. It means something to me. Yeah. I hope that you know that and that you live in that light mm -hmm. and that you move forward in a way um, that helps other people to live in that light too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautifully said. And it really is about knowing that we matter. And before we go into our next part, just everybody just to think about if anything that we say or someone else says something and it's a threat to you, 
It's a threat to what you already know. You can just go to a different church service, and the, the fact that they do different songs mm-hmm. often becomes a threat because it's just not what you know. Just to pause and to see why it's a threat, see what the concern is about thinking of something differently or someone else thinking and living differently. It's just a pause. And to find out the voice you're listening to in your head, is it authentic? Is it somebody else's voice that you now are hearing as your own that now actually won't let you be who God's called you to be? Mm -hmm. I think all of us struggle with that. Well, I thank you so much. I want to put you in the hot seat real Mm -hmm. quick. Sure. I'm going to ask you just real simple, kind of fun questions. And we'll just go through this little rapid fire hot seat for you. All right. Okay. All right. So I'll give you a word and tell me when you hear this word, what's the first word that comes to mind for you? All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's the word. Taco. Salad. Salad. Taco <laughs> salad. Great. What are you reading right now? Oh, um, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, yeah. great book. Excellent book. Very good. Do you think you would do well in prison? Yes. Why? What is it about you to make you do well in prison? Well, uh, I didn't talk about this, but I have a lot of incarcerated pen pals. So um, they share a lot with me. Is that how you met your husband? What was that? Is that how you met your husband? (laughs) No, No, but actually, okay, so I'll I'll make this story quick, even though you have the rapid fire. My husband had a friend who was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Um, It was somebody that he worked with. And this person was incarcerated for a horrible crime Mm -hmm. and we thought he was innocent and, you know, was kind of railroaded. And um, I ended up writing to him to hear a little bit more because I was fascinated by what happened to him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's a black man. And I just, you know, I, I had read the new Jim Crow and I wanted to understand about, you know, a little bit more about what has been endured within the black community um, as far as our law enforcement Mm -hmm. is concerned. And he, to know somebody, personally that was going through it. Um, and he connected me with, I mean, he was very forthcoming. It was a, you know, great friendship pen palship, but he connected me with some, one of his female friends who was in uh, the women's prison and she and I exchanged letters and she was so encouraged by my letters that she gave my address. She asked me if it was okay to give my address to other inmates that were facing discouragement. And mm. I had like eight mm. letters in one week, you know, from different women who were all telling me, you know, their story and what they'd been through and what they did, you know. And so um, I definitely developed just a, an appreciation for the fact that we are not the worst thing that we ever did, mm-hmm. um, so you true. know, and that most a lot of the people who are in prison are there because they did something when they were under the influence that they would mm-hmm. never have done. Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and just to acknowledge that. Um, so mm-hmm. there's this part of me that's like, because I have all these pen pals that has imagined, you know, what if I yeah. was with them? What if I was within that community and, yeah. you know, the sadness that they feel, mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think that I would thrive with another group of yeah. women and yeah. I would really enjoy being, try to be an encouragement to them. And I'm sure with their life story, they would be an encouragement to me too, because people are just people. So. That's good. That's amazing. One thing led to you having a natural ministry to be there for people. That's really cool. I like mm-hmm. that. Okay. Do you play Wordle? No. What? <laughs> Girl. So this is what happened. I would be amazing at Wordle. I don't know what it is. And let me tell you why. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'll be amazing at it because I'm an eight. <laughs> I would. I Okay. I, I just, I don't know if this is the case, but I destroy everybody I play in Scrabble. So if it has right. anything to do with 
that I would, I would be okay. Like people won't play with me anymore because I'm pretty good. So anyways, what happened to me was around uh, Christmas time, a pop-up memory on my Facebook page came four year old photo of my children in the bathtub, four little boys sitting in the tub. There's no genitals exposed. Right. Okay. I get a, a little note from Facebook team saying, your account has been flagged for sexual imagery of children. Oh my gosh. And you've got 30 days to say that this didn't happen. So I did what they wanted me to do and appealed it. And they deactivated my account. Wow. And so when Wordle came to be, I was not on any social media for six weeks. I did not, I was not at all like, and so all of a sudden I'm seeing all this every day. It's like Wordle, Wordle, Wordle. Everybody's mm. upset because they're like, I didn't get it. And like other people are like, I'm so smart. And I'm like, right. I would probably be amazing at that, but I don't know what it is. And yeah. I've chosen not to know, Kim. I've chosen. I got you. Okay. I'm not going to mess with you. Addictive brain. I'm not going to mess. <laughs> not going any further with it. But okay. Last question. Last yep. question. If you had to run for office, which office, which position would you run for? Uh, vice president. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a great support person. Like I'm great. Like I am the cheerleader for the champion. I love right. the ideas. I get very, very insecure at the tippy tip top. Right. Like okay. I just start to feel like an immense pressure weighing on me that I'm like yeah. going to make a bad decision and hurt people. But yeah. I really want a lot of influence. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I love that balance. You'd be the VP. All right. Well, that is amazing. If our people want to find you or get in touch with Ezra Rising, throw out there a little bit of how they would be able to follow you or follow your company, your nonprofit. Well, okay. So we are, you just find us easy, E-R-R-I-S-I-N-G is Aza Rising. And that is, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, always being snarky. Um, (laughs) We are on Pinterest and... I'm trying to think. So our website is under construction right now, but it should be up and running. It might even be up and running by the time this podcast mm-hmm. airs. Um, yeah. So we're, it's azarising.org. Yeah. So yeah, we've got six writers right now. But we're looking for more people, more voices. Uh, we're definitely looking for people who are within the LGBTQ community or people of color. Um, right now, <laughs> with where our country has been, we have found that those who are kind of within those marginalized communities are very weary. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, they just don't, I mean, it's putting themselves out there is just very draining. And, mm-hmm. and we're trying to be cognizant of that and to try to be cheerleaders for them and be encouragers. But at the same time, we can't keep the trolls from yeah. coming in and saying obnoxious yeah. things. And that can be very draining. So we ask that our staff um, content creators come on and they would come with us for a year. Mm-hmm. And they get one day a week. That's their day. They have all, access to all the, you know, the places they can go. They can post to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of it. I think we have a TikTok too, but I'm I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and they get to just be themselves in those places and have people respond to mm-hmm. them. Um, mm-hmm. So if that's something, and any listeners are out there, you feel like you've got a unique voice, you've got something to say, you kind of if you like some of the things that I've said, that's sort of, those are the conversations that we have. Mm. Um, there are some deal breakers, you know, that we don't really want certain, certain 
mindsets, complementarianism, where you're not really mm. interested in, right. in uh, people who are sort of pro male headship or patriarchy or anything like that. But uh, for the most part, we're pretty, we're pretty open as long as it has to do mm. with women and equality um, yeah. Yeah, and just the intersection of, of, you know, people from the margins being able mm-hmm. to have a voice that is front and center. Yeah, that's right. That's so good. Well, thank you for your time, your expertise, your compassion, all of it, the ability to challenge others in a loving way. Thank you for all that. And to all our listeners, I have no doubt that today you've heard something that's helped you reconnect to who you actually are. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.